Hello, I'm Tim Marlowe, Artistic Director of the Royal Academy of Arts, and this event was part of the Festival of Ideas, an inspiring lineup of talks and debates with innovators from across the arts, brought to you from the new Benjamin West Lecture Theatre. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Royal Academy's Festival of Ideas. It's part of their 250th birthday celebrations, and we've, had a, we've got a 10-day uh, program of events that began last weekend and are going on till next Sunday. Uh, today we are discussing art and dementia and I'm delighted to introduce two fantastic speakers on the subject. Nikki Gerard, uh, co-author of Psychological Thrillers that she writes under the name of Nikki French. Uh, she also co-founded a campaign to help patients living with dementia. She's an award-winning journalist who won the Orwell Prize for her work on dementia And she has just finished, she informs me, her book on dementia, which is coming out next year. And Hannah Zielig, a senior research fellow at the University of the Arts in London and a visiting research fellow at the University of East Anglia. She's written extensively on the role and value of the arts for people with dementia. And she's also worked with a group of neuroscientists and musicians at the Wellcome Institute, exploring dementia through science and the creative arts. And most recently, she has investigated the possibilities of artistic co-creativity for people with dementia. Um, I'll be talking to Nikki and Hannah for about 40 minutes, and then there will be an opportunity for you all to ask questions. Um, Nikki, can I start with you? Can you tell us how you first became interested in dementia and the role of the arts? It's a very, you've got a very personal story. Sure. Well, I think like a lot of people, I was rather unaware of dementia. And that's strange because a grandpa- grandparent on either side had dementia. But somehow it stood far off for me. But my father had dementia. I and mean, I would say that I think it's something like a million people just under a million people in the UK are now living with dementia. So it's not, you know, he was one of very many. So my father, he, had, he lived with dementia for about 10 years. Um, and there's a phrase, living well with dementia. So for about 10... Can you hear me? Is this not working? Is, it, is that better? Shall I, I'll hold it. I'll, I'll clutch my shirt. Can you hear me? <laughs> yes. Is that good? Okay, right, I'll begin it. So, my, my, is that good? My, my father, whose name was John, John Gerard, he had dementia for about 10 years. And there's a, there's a phrase that people use, which is living well with dementia. So for about 10 years, my father was living well with dementia. And he lived at home with my mother, who'd been married to for 61 years. Um, and he still went on long walks, he worked in the garden, he saw friends, he saw family, he spent time with his grandchildren, Um, and he was quite happy, although he was very gradually going into some kind of darkness. And he had moments of anxiety, but mostly it was quite a kind, a kind dementia. And then it became, for the last nine months of his life, because of an experience that he had in hospital, It became a brutal illness, a brutal and cruel illness. And he spent the last nine months of his life in a hospital bed in a little room downstairs. And he could not talk, he couldn't walk, he was incontinent, he couldn't recognise people. And he lay in bed, kind of staring out at the garden that he used to work in. 
and it was um, it was it was a terrible terrible way to end a life, and it made me realise suddenly how, how which I should have known anyway, of course, how many people go through this experience, and yet how invisible it is, and how lonely people are when they're going through that experience. Um, thinking about the art of it, my my father, he was. He loved nature. He loved being outside. He loved kind of identifying insects and birds and wildflowers. He was very kind of connected to his surroundings. He loved painting. He loved um, po- he loved reading poetry out loud and acting. He was he was kind of we talk about everyday creativity. He was very kind of happy with kind of confident with everyday creativity. Um, and as he became, in those last nine months, when it felt impossible to reach him, he would just be lying in bed with this foggy expression, um, barely able to recognise anybody, except actually sometimes my dog. He'd be very happy to see my dog. But, but there were some things that he suddenly realised... They were, they were connecting to him. So he felt completely... Well, he felt almost dead at times, and yet there were some things that would connect to him. So very often, we would play music to him, and he seemed to respond. Um, and there was, one, there was one event which I remember... Would, I'll never forget it. So I, I made him an anthology of poetry that he used to read to us when we were children. It was kind of all the kind of golden oldies and... Um, and one of his very favourite was a, the John Macefield poem, which probably everyone here knows, which is, I must go down to the seas again, the lonely sea in the sky. And he used to know that off by heart and used to read it to us. And I, every time I went to see him, I'd read him poems. And this particular time, I was with my, all my children, and we, the, all, the, my four children, and we stood around his bed and we we recited this poem to him and he joined in and it was just the most extraordinary moment and we was there and we were all there with tears pouring down our faces chanting this poem and he, and my dad he couldn't speak any longer and he couldn't he couldn't say his own name he joined into this poem and it made me think and it was quite it was a, it was a very revelatory moment because it made me think He's still there. You know, I had thought he wasn't still there, really. And then I thought, he is still there. Somewhere in that wreckage, there's my dad. And there were lots of little moments through his long going where art could find him, where nothing else could find him. Were there other art forms that he responded to? He was, it, was mostly, it was mostly music... And poetry. I mean, when in his in the in the ten years of this, of of dementia, when he was still all right, as it were, he did things like um, he painted. I mean, his painting got quite quite patchy, but he still liked kind of making a mark, as it were. So he still liked kind of putting his his kind of signature on the world. So we, and also, actually, he loved dancing. He was a great dancer, and he used to love, even when he was a bit unsteady on his feet, he would kind of grab hold of someone and we'd dance, and we danced to music he used to love. So, actually, you know, there were ways in which, you know, he couldn't communicate 
in the old ways, but there were new ways that he could communicate in. And those moments were very were moments of kind of great kindness to him, I think, and to us, and to us, because suddenly we were there back in relationship with him. And Hannah, how, when, how and when did you first get interested in dementia? Well, I was always interested in older people. So from a very young age, and I've thought a lot about this and wondered why it might be, whether it was to do with not having grandparents around. Um, but I think it was uh, primarily to do with my love of stories. So all the older people I met had the best stories about their lives. Um, and I went on to do literature at university, but always worked in day centres for older people. And this was back in the 90s. Um, there were age concern day centres. And one that I worked in was for the elderly, mentally infirm. So we actually didn't use the word dementia um, as much as we do now. And there were a group of people there who I enjoyed spending time with. And it struck me forcibly that the way we were encouraged to interact with these older people who were apparently mentally infirm was, um, was bonkers. So we were asked to do things like reality orientation. So I don't know if any of you here would know what that was, but it involved sitting... And I was trained to do this, so I guess I was about 22 or 3 at the time, with a group of these interesting and long-lived and wise older people... And I was trained to sit with them and say, now, what day is it today? And uh, what's the weather like outside? Um, so very quickly, I felt that that was um, wrong, really, um, and was also notable that there was nothing else going on. So there were no arts. So being somebody who'd also always been steeped in the arts um, and kind of raised very luckily, going to the theatre and with a lot of music and reading... It seemed bizarre that we would have this kind of silo of older people and nothing happening except reality orientation, sometimes bingo, um, and not much else. So, um, so early, in the early 90s, I then went on to study gerontology um, as an academic discipline, which is the study of human ageing, and then much later started to put together my interest in ageing and the arts and started to work again with people living with a dementia and was lucky enough to meet and work with John Killick. Um, I don't know if you're aware of John's work, but it was eye-opening to me how he would make poetry and work with people in care homes mainly. Um, and I had the pleasure of working with him for two years in a care home in North Norfolk, which was quite amazing. So I was in a care home for older people living with a dementia in a part of Norfolk which was almost never visited by anyone, on the edge of a cliff, and the cliff itself was disintegrating, as these parts of Norfolk do, into the sea. So the whole thing was fascinating. And John and I would go there and work with the staff, actually, of the care home, um, using the arts, and also with the residents. And it was at that point, which is uh, nearly a decade ago, that I started to realise that, that the arts could be very important, or are very important in this context. So that's when that began, really. 
And one of the things that you did as a result of your father's dementia is you set up a charity. And it does that... So it's not actually a charity. Oh. It's a campaign. It's not, there's no kind of bureaucracy oh. involved in it at all. It's really just two of us in our spare time. So it's a, it's a campaign, and it's called John's Campaign. And it actually links very well to what we're talking about now. What, I mean, what happened to my father is that he went into hospital because he had leg ulcers. Um, and they couldn't be cured at home. And he stayed there for far too long, and they had very restricted visiting hours. And then they had no visiting hours at all because there was an outbreak of norovirus, which meant that for days on end, he, wasn't, he didn't see any of us. And his decline was really shocking. So he went in, he went in well, as I've described, and he came out, he was, <coughs> he was wrecked, and he never recovered from it. And what I discovered far too late was that... You know, it is vital for our mental health to, to keep connected. That if we had been there at all times, kind of talking to him, reading to him, holding his hand, stroking his hair, looking into his eyes, kind of keeping him connected, to the, tethered to the world, I think this wouldn't have happened. I mean, he was, he was always going to be declining, but it was like he went off a cliff. And... We didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know until it was too late what was happening to him. So, I mean, I kind of felt then, and I feel now, and I probably will feel for the rest of my life that I abandoned him. And I, I, but I didn't know that I was abandoning him, but I did abandon him. And it just seemed to me that I just had to make sure other people knew <laughs> what I didn't know. So we started a campaign, which is very, very simple and single issue, which is that the carers of people who are living with dementia should have the same right as parents of sick children to accompany them when they go into hospital. I mean, it is so simple and it is so obvious and it is so mad there should even have to be a campaign for it. But there, there does. Um, so that's for the last... Since my father died... In fact, I started the campaign like 10 days after Dad died and have spent... Kind of, many hours and days each week on trying to make sure that every hospital implements it. Every single hospital, every ward in every hospital. And actually, and because of the work that I've done with that, I mean, I've been kind of up and down the country, in and out of hospitals, residential homes, I just learnt the most enormous amount about what people go through when they're living with dementia and what the carers of people with dementia go through and the, the the kind of courage and the isolation um, and the invisibility and the shame that people feel and just the kind of cost in human time in, in, in human terms is so enormous um, so it's been an extraordinary journey for me and, and, and actually out of that I've, I'm, because of that campaign really and because of what happened to dad I've also written this book that you mentioned about um, the stages of self-loss in dementia and what it means to us as an individual, as a society. And in the process of writing the book, did you discover, were the things that you discovered, new things, revelations? Well, I'm glad to say. <laughs> It'd be a very bad book if that had <laughs> So, no, I mean, in a way, I mean, I think I've partly said it. I think that... Dementia is, I mean, it's the, it's the thing that we're most frightened of now. People used to be most 
frightened of getting cancer. And I think now most people, it's the, it's the disease that we're most scared of. And because it was so scared of it, and because it's so, because it is so profoundly scary, that sense that you can lose the sense of who you are and gradually disappear from yourself. I think, I think because it's so scary, we, we often try and push it away. Um, and if we're disgusted and repelled by old age, which I think we are as a society, we're kind of, we're that squared with dementia. So yeah. in a sense, what I've kind of thought a lot about is partly, you know, why we are so very scared of it. And of course, we're scared of it because it's out there, but also maybe it's in here. Maybe that's what we're all coming to, maybe. Um, it's something that I've thought about a huge amount as well. Um, and the extent to which society also makes us scared. Um, so I think the language that we use around what dementia is um, and what people who have a dementia are going through is, is very powerful. You earlier mentioned it as language is active, and langu which I agree with. A language actively shapes our experiences and understanding of this condition, which of course isn't one condition. There are 200 different kinds of dementia. We now know that we should talk about the dementias and that each one affects every individual differently and that every individual has a different journey with this condition. Um, and yet, nonetheless, it's, it's kind of an umbrella term that's used almost daily in the press to evoke revulsion and fear and the unknown. Um, and I find that very, very interesting. And until we start changing our language at a societal level, we're not going to change how we feel I about mean, it. I mean, I think that's... I mean, we talk about kind of, you know, people losing their minds or yeah. being kind of living vegetables or... Mm. I mean, very kind of... Demeaning. We talk about people as objects, I suppose. And, so, and I think that's what we do with... Actually, I think we do it quite a lot with people who are very old as well. We think about them as as objects, not as subjects of their own life, but as objects, and we can put, and, you know, and actually, and, but it, you know, even when you change the language, it does remain scary, I think. Yeah. It is, because it's, I mean, being alive is rather scary, and getting old is rather scary, and it's also bodily. I mean, I think that's the, one of the things that I've come up against time and again, is just how kind of bodily the disease can get and therefore how shameful it can feel to people around it. You know, people who yeah. no longer have control over their body. There's, a, there's another interesting um, thing that's going on and has been going on in contemporary society, which is that we equate the self with the brain. So yeah. when there's an atrophy in the brain, whether that's as a result of one of the dementias or something else, <laughs> Um, and there are a lot of head injuries that might have similar effects, we, we immediately think there's a loss of self to some degree. And we underplay the extent to which we are also embodied, absolutely, absolutely, sensory, yeah, yeah. Yep. feeling mm. beings. Yeah. And, and so beings which are more than our memory. in the world. Kind of, yes. Exactly. It's the idea of brainhood. Yeah. So there's actually a phrase for it, that we are our brains. Um, it's not always been the case. 200 years ago, we might have thought we were our hearts or our livers in the Renaissance. So it's, it's uh, interesting to, to think about it and to dissociate ourself 
from our brain and realise that we might be more than that. And you did lots of work with neuroscientists and musicians talking about the brain at the Welcome. Yeah. What, can you just tell us a bit about that? Because that was in relationship to dementia or dementias. Yes, it was in relationship to the dementias. Um, and so it was the first time in the last two years of my uh, working life that I was working uh, with people with rare dementias. Um, I hadn't knowingly done so beforehand. Uh, and there were many, many projects that happened at the Welcome. So there were around 60 different projects. Uh, the one that I was most closely involved with was a co-creative project, which you mentioned in your opening. And that was with musicians, although we also guided by some neuroscientists, um, to work creatively, co-creatively, with people living with a dementia. And so that was important that we started to consider what it meant to work creatively and to distinguish that. So creativity has generally been associated with the individual. Um, it's a fairly recent term. It was only coined in around 1873, the idea of creativity. Um, it's increasingly become something that is almost imperative in modern culture. You have to be creative. Um, and that it's something that is also closely associated with the artist um, in particular. So that recently that's been unpicked and we've thought about um, big C creativity and small C creativity. The small C is what I'm more interested in and everyday creativity yeah. that you were talking about with your dad and his interest in insects and um, in fact that we all display all the time. And co-creativity is linked but again different and it thinks about, we're thinking about creativity as a process. So it's something that happens between us. It's not just an individual phenomenon, um, but it's a mutual aesthetic process, if you like. So we started to work co-creatively with a group of people with a dementia who came every week for 10 weeks to the welcome. And uh, it, was, it was an amazing and very frightening project as well. Why was it frightening? <laughs> because it was unplanned, Nikki. So we didn't have, unlike the majority of participative arts projects, which are great yeah, and which have yeah. a value, which is so important that you've written about, that I've been part of, um, but what tends to happen is that you've got a group of, say, musicians who are going to play these tunes with and for people. So we didn't have that. We had a group of musicians and dancers, so it was a non-verbal art that we used, um, but we didn't have a plan. So anything... Could have Anything could happen. And did. Yeah, very <laughs> And did you, at the end of the 10 weeks, did yeah. you come to any conclusions or findings? We're still working on the results, um, but preliminary, are we, you know, it was all the way through. So we had, um, perhaps most importantly, uh, one of the people with dementia, who was one of our co-creators, and every week she'd arrived and she'd wondered why she was there. And every week, we would go over what we were hoping to do, and we would sit with her and work with her. Um, and then at the end of these sessions, she said, you know, I'm, I've been very disorganized in my day-to-day -day life, but since coming to these sessions, I find that I'm more organized. I'm more in control. Uh, and I was gobsmacked, because the last thing I expected was that these free-flowing, improvisational 
we didn't have a plan, sessions would, would give control to people with dementia. And so that's what we're investigating now, really, this idea of agency in people's lives. And were the neuroscience map, were they able to map neural pathways and things in the brain, or was it not? No, it wasn't part of uh, what they were doing there. They were doing, we did object handling with neuroscientists who were actually using bracelets um, and measuring galvanic skin responses. And What's galvanic map. skin response? It's your stress response. Okay. So the hormones that you're giving out. Okay. When we first met to talk about this session, we talked a lot about kind of self-consciousness and the obsidian mirror, and I wondered if you could talk a bit about that. Oh, that's a nice link, actually. The, the uh, obsidian mirror was one of the objects we used in our sessions, in our co-creative sessions, and the obsidian mirror is made out of a volcanic rock. It's black, and it's a small thing, and it was from the Welcome Collection. Um, it was used in the Renaissance by the magician John Dee, and he used it for Skyring, which I'm not exactly sure what that is. I don't know if anybody here might know what that is. I'm not quite sure, but it's a form of magic. You see things, I think. He was seeing things into it. So we would bring the obsidian mirror, and it would be passed around the group. And what's very interesting is um, the role of the mirror for all of us, and then the role of the mirror for people living with a dementia. Um, and what this little object did is it reflects you back, but not like a glass mirror. You see yourself dimly in the black. Um, and it provoked extraordinary creative do people, responses. Do people get frightened by it? I mean, I know, because no. I know that with people with dementia... Very frightened. ...are often terrified of seeing their image in the mirror because they don't recognise themselves. And it feels like it's their father or a stranger or someone who's old when they feel young. Yeah. But they didn't get frightened no. of this dim image. No, this kind of blackened, hazy image was on the, on the contrary. I think it was quite inspiring uh-huh. for our groups. So it was interesting. Yeah, so it became a kind of object where... A metaphorical object um, around ideas of the self um, and also magic and connection. And we kind of connected them in a way where they often feel they've kind of lost connectivity. And you spoke earlier about, you've both talked about kind of everyday creativity and co-creativity. Do you think it's important where people experience their kind of um, exposure to art or an artistic practice to help them with dementia? I mean, I think that it's... You know, it, it's important. It, it's not that one is better than the other, but it just makes a difference. Setting makes a difference, of course. I mean, for instance, going into someone's home where, where you're the guest, so that's completely different to being in a residential home or being in a kind of hall. Or, I mean, there are some extraordinary, extraordinary examples. I mean, I, I don't know how many people in this room have seen the film Alive Inside, which is a, like a... It, it feels like a miracle. So it, it was in America. You know these big warehouse homes that exist in some states in America that, like, thousands of people with advanced dementia are put. They're often very poor. They don't get much care. And they just sit there. We talk about system. They just sit there. And this, there was... And a very in, wonderful man had the idea of 
of using music to try and bring them out, to see, to see what would happen. And he, he didn't just do any old music. I mean, often you go into homes. I mean, sometimes you go into a home and they're playing Vera Lynn to everyone. I mean, I, <laughs> shoot me now if I... <laughs> so in this case, he found out from the relatives what music this particular person used to love. And he put them on an iPad and put, kind of plugged them into earphones. And the, the most famous example is this, is this man who was sitting in a wheelchair, completely slumped, all day long, just slumped, not talking. Food would be pushed into his mouth, drink would be pushed in, he would be lifted in and out of bed. That was his life. And he was, he, they, I think it was Louis Armstrong or something, yeah, some kind of jazz. And he used to love jazz as a young man. You saw pictures of him as a young man kind of swinging around a lamppost and looking just so vigorous and full of life. And so he was given this music and after a few seconds his head lifted up and then he started smiling and then and then he started kind of jiving in his chair to the music and kind of half singing along and it was lit it was literally like seeing somebody brought back from the dead back into life and then after the music had finished for a few moments after that for a few minutes after that he could kind of communicate a little bit I mean, it wasn't as if it was going to make him better. It wasn't a cure for anything. It was just him in the moment being reached by music and being a young man again, I think, with the music. And I've been lucky enough to see moments like that, quite like that, not as dramatic, yeah. but quite yeah. often. Um, and so in our recent project, uh, we had uh, a man who had been a percussionist, a quite famous percussionist, and his wife... Um, who was a ballet dancer, and he was now, is now um, quite unwell with his dementia. But in our sessions, he was, he came, it's like he unfurled yeah. when, he, when the drum was put in front of him, and he kept a beat that the musicians couldn't keep yeah. up with, because it was far more complex. <laughs> and then at the end of the sessions, he again kind of retreated. But the idea that in some way that he was lost, or uh, he was certainly covered up, by his dementia, but he was all absolutely there. So that's so interesting that he was better than the other musicians. Yeah, because yeah. one of the things that I think is really important for us to think about is what our relationship is to the person with dementia. So often we're very, without realising it, rather patronising, yes. infantilising, yes. yeah. um, treating them as lesser, mm-hmm. treating them like children. And I mean, I remember being in a dance hall in a hall where they were doing dance. And I was partnered with this kind of, this tall man and this tiny little woman. And they, they weren't very good at, talk, they couldn't communicate by talking very well anymore. And they were clearly in a state of some confusion and kind of frailty when they arrived. And then when the music started, the woman was just the most fantastic dancer. I mean, she just clearly had danced all her life and she was, she was just, and she was teaching me dance steps and she was teaching me how to dance. So I was the learner and she was the teacher. And there was something just fantastic about that and also yeah. very salutary for me to think, you know, we can all learn from each other and we're all in this, we're in, and, and I think art, that kind of everyday creativity, kind of that kind of art, it's just democratic. Yeah. It's wonderfully democratic. democratic. We're all in it together, and nobody. There's no hierarchy here. We're in this space together, and that, and actually, 
talking about this place. The Royal Academy, I went to a, an art discussion group at the Royal Academy sometime last year, and it was for people living with dementia and people who lived with them, maybe as partners or as carers. And, um, and these were people who'd always loved art. And the Royal Academy very wonderfully realised that often they feel they can't go to kind of formal things anymore. And it was, it, there were like 15 or 20 of us sitting, looking at a painting and discussing it. And the really important thing about that was time. Everyone was given enough time. No one was hurried. Um, and they were, with, if once they were allowed that time and that kind of sense of not being judged and everyone's ideas were being respected and listened to, they were so good at talking. I mean, they were so clever. <laughs> they were so clever. You know, people with dementia are not stupid. They have dementia. They have a complex brain disease. They're not, they're not idiots. So what, what you say really resonates, um, despite years and years of working with people with dementia, I'm aware of my own prejudices. Um, and I was happily pulled up against them at the end of our project at Welcome when uh, a person with dementia came and said, I'm so glad I was able to help you. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah. Somehow, still, in my back of my head, I was thinking that I was helping you, but you were really helping me because I couldn't have done this project <laughs> without yeah. you. So uh, that That's was so really, really important insight. And the idea that we're kind of still quite patronising, um, that peoples with a dementia are that. Many, many people, just as we're many people, uh, is, is important to keep remembering. I think it's interesting, actually, you talked about... I mean, the Royal Academy uh, in mind sessions run every, I think... Once a month on Mondays, I mean, if, if you want to go, go on the website, they're incredibly popular, so you do need to book in advance. But I think one of the things you mentioned, Nikki, was about carers, and I think involving carers too and supporting them and the role of art, the role that art can play to help them, because actually I think carers looking after people with dementia is very challenging. Oh, well, I don't know if people in this room are carers, but I think to be a carer is the most extraordinary heroic task that people are doing kind of unpaid unsung unrecognized and it's and carers very often get pressed they often get ill um they often get poor <laughs> they often get <laughs> they often get very lonely um they often feel very guilty because you can never do it perfect i mean the you know the word carer is such a I mean, I think there should be another word for carer. I've got a friend who talks very angrily about being told that she's the loved one when she's often feeling really not very loving. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, th I think that, you know, there's a way that carer implies a kind of, a kind of saintly and self-sacrificial nature. And actually, you know, it, and people don't choose to be carers. People don't choose to have dementia. It's what we might come to in our time. And there needs to be somehow it needs to be something more collective. I mean, an art can do that. There needs to be a way in which we think it's not just them who are dealing with this problem. There it needs to be, needs to be us. It needs to be, well, there needs to be more funding and also more awareness and more art and just more sense that we're all in it together and we're all, you know, we help each other and then we have to be helped in our turn, that we're all vulnerable and at each other's mercy. And, there's, and that's got to be somehow embedded 
into the kind of fabric of society in a way that it simply isn't. I mean, I think it's getting much, much better. And so I, kind of 20 or 30 years ago, people didn't talk about dementia, really. We were not, we just didn't talk about it. It was behind closed doors. And that is getting better and very rapidly getting better. But it needs to be even more rapid. I mean, where would you like to see kind of dementia and our attitudes to dementia in five years? Say, well, as no, well it's such a big uh, topic, so it's really difficult to answer in a kind of neat way. But, of course, part of the project at Welcome was about challenging and altering our perceptions of the dementias. Um, one of the key things is that we need to talk more openly about what it is to live with these conditions. Um, I, I feel that there also needs to be more of a collective responsibility um, about for older people and for people with dementia so that we live in a society that increasingly makes everything individual. And even the scientific language now about dementia is about prevention and risk and individual risk factors, what you can do to not have a dementia, which is all fine and well and good, but we also need a collective language. This is something that we're all working at together. It affects all of us. Um, so that's what I would love to see change. So where would I like to see? I'd like to see dementia not here anymore. So apart from that. <laughs> um, I mean, I... So it's interesting. I've thought of quite a lot about what we need. I mean, one of the things that... I've been thinking about is how we don't like to think of getting older and we don't like to think of end of life and we don't like to think of dying and so we put it all away and then suddenly it ambushes us um, so it always feels for everyone to whom it happens it feels very unexpected and we're not prepared for it so partly we need to talk about it more, which is why things like this are so good we need to kind of talk about it and realize that it's all around us and maybe within us and it's something that we all need to kind of kind of deal with and embrace and be kinder towards each other and not i mean yeah not shut it away and then i guess if we're thinking about the arts i mean this goes you know i think everyday art in dementia is absolutely vital i think it should be on prescription i think everyone but I, but i think it should be on i think it should just be there all the time for everybody i think that thought that kind of Art is not part of life. I mean, I think that we should start, as soon as children go to nursery school, they should dance every morning before class and sing every afternoon at the end of it. We should just build it into our lives. Um, so kind of singing and painting and dancing and listening to music and touching each other and touching each other in a good way. Um, <laughs> and just, just, just kind of, that, that should be part of our life. So it shouldn't be something that we have to bring in. We don't need to have, you know, an hour every week in a residential home singing Vera Lynn. No. We just, there needs to be kind of just, yeah. we need to be more, it's about being connected. Everyone needs, yeah. So, so we I just need a massive, agree. massive revolution in the way we all live. And I don't know what we're going to do now, but <laughs> yeah, we I, should all stand up and dance or something. I was just going to add that we were doing some research on music and we found out that the earliest flute, the earliest instrument that has ever been found is a flute, um, like a flute, and it was 42,000 years ago. So the idea that the arts are separate, yeah, yeah. just to underline what you were saying, is, is crazy. They've been separated from us 
but they should be part of our lives all the time. And in a moment, I'm going to open it up to the floor, but I've got one quick question for both of you. If there's one thing that could improve the lives of people living with dementia, what would it be? Well, you know the answer. My answer to this is a political answer, really. I think that carers in care homes um, and carers, informal, that we call informal carers, there should be funding, they should be paid better. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I, I think I'm going to have to say the same thing because at the moment, something that happens to people, if they're unlucky, they're then punished for so massively. I mean, the fact that people who work as carers in residential homes are paid so little money that it's almost like it's this... it's this, this, this most kind of precious job. They're doing this job that we should all be on our knees saying thank you. For them. And, they get, and they get disregarded. It's like a lowly thing to do. And it's precious. The fact that carers in their own home are so little supported, is a, it's a scandalous thing and it's getting worse. So, yeah, yeah that's just got to be changed. Thank you. Now, unfortunately, we have run out of time, and I know there are some people who still want to ask questions, but as I say, Nikki and Hannah will be around if you would like to ask your questions. Yeah, I'm not going anywhere. No. No. So a huge thank you to Hannah and Nikki Gerald. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, have a look at what else is coming up in our brand new lecture theatre at roy.ac forward slash what's on.